Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Books podcast. This week I'm joined by Professor Sarah Churchwell, who is, in her rather brilliant title, Professor of American Literature and Chair of Public Understanding of the Humanities at the School of Advanced Study, University of London. This week, Sarah's advanced study is, well, she's written a book of history, which is Behold America, a history of America first and the American dream, a response in part, historically, to the rise of Donald Trump, of whom she is not a fan. <laughs> That's safe to say. So what made you write, I mean, it's quite an unconventional book, you're not by trade a historian. It's a book, a biography of two phrases. Mm, yeah. So what I would have called it if it didn't sound hopelessly academic and make everybody run screaming for the streets was a rhetorical history because it's really a history of the, as you say, it's a genealogy of these two phrases. So it's a kind of cultural history and my work has always sat in the space of cultural history. And I was actually thinking about the continuities between this book and my previous books because it does look so different and it looks like a departure. But in fact, all of my books are in a sense tracing the genealogy of cultural myths. And my first book was about Marilyn Monroe. My second book was about Scott Fitzgerald and the Great Gatsby. And now I've written this book about the American dream and America first, which is more about political cultural history. And as I say, it seems like a departure, but actually what I'm talking about is the way in which this myth of the American dream emerged and now an important other facet of that is the way in which we're starting to mythologize and, and fight over the meanings of the phrase America first, thanks to Trump's decision to resuscitate them. So I wanted to go back to try to resist received wisdom and to not just recycle the same stories that are recycled endlessly in the media about what we think the cliche of the American dream means, where everybody takes that for granted, and the ways in which people have talked about America first since Trump resuscitated it, and go back and see what people actually said about those phrases in the United States when they emerged. I mean, what's, what seems to be surprising, obviously, the American dream is current in the conversation, has been you know, non-stop. America first was the thing that a lot of people lit on, and they said, ah, oh, this goes back to... And their memories went back as far back as Lindbergh, basically. Yeah. Everything starts with the Second World War. <laughs> so I wanted to say what would happen if we actually went back and said, instead of assuming that we know when this started, use the magic of computers and identify when they began. When did people start using these phrases and what did they mean? Now, of course, there have been endless numbers of histories of the American dream as a concept, but that actually presupposes that the phrase and the concept are united, that they were always yoked together, but they weren't. So the concept that we use the American dream to talk about, the idea of personal opportunity, of meritocracy, of bootstrapping the Horatio Alger ethic, all of that, of course, does go back to the founding of the United States and, and beyond. But it wasn't those ideas were not associated with the phrase the American dream until much later. And indeed, the phrase the American dream existed for a long time without being associated with those ideas. And it was that divergence that I wanted to try to unpick. Parenthetically, you said the magic of computers. Is this a book that would have been possible to write or possible to write this quickly before you had massive corpuses of American no, newspapers no. being digitized? I mean, absolutely it impossible. It was deep Google job. Yeah, absolutely, sense. exactly. I was. It was really interesting. It was a kind of treasure hunt, right? It was scavenger hunt. Can I find? Can I try to identify when these two phrases emerged and when they began to use be used in a collective political sense that we might recognize? When do they start to be used to articulate the kinds of ideas that we're talking about? And and the answers were surprising. So, but absolutely, this book could not have been written without computers, let alone 
alone written this quickly it couldn't have been done and that's why nobody had ever traced the emergence of the phrase the American dream because the human eye can't find it you couldn't possibly do it and you can't even do it this isn't I'm not claiming this is definitive obviously there will be examples that that aren't in here but what I tried to do was to be very representative so what I've tried very hard not to do is you know obviously it's bad intellectual practice cherry pick I've tried not to leave out counter examples that would disprove what I'm claiming and to try to follow trends to say broadly in all of the examples I was finding here's what the phrase seemed to be used to mean at this point in time and here's what it seemed to be used to mean at this point in time but of course they were contested and I was looking again in the interest of of trying not to cherry pick of trying to be representative I was careful to look at newspapers from across the political spectrum from across the country not just look at the major newspapers in the major metropolitan areas but there are lots I mean most of the examples in this book are from little local papers all over the country as I was trying to give a flavor of how ordinary Americans were using these phrases as they emerged memes before we had memes. Absolutely. Now, though you tell a twined story of two phrases, I mean, I think we probably need to take them one by one in a sense. Let's start with the American dream. The sort of vulgar understanding of it is that this means, as you say, the sort of Horatio Alger rag to riches thing. And the common critique of it is that it's a sort of, it capes essentially for massive inequalities in America because, you know, the reason you're not rich is because you're not trying hard you enough and everyone enough. Exactly. has a chance. Exactly. That's exactly right. And so it's, as you say, it's a kind of justification for radical individualism and for free market capitalism that says the government, you know, very libertarian notion of free market capitalism that says the government should have absolutely nothing to do with this. Individuals should just be, you know, getting on with things without interference. What was interesting when I dug into the history of the phrase, however, is that actually the American dream emerged as a way to talk about a national value system almost exactly 100 years ago, at the beginning of the 20th century. And that was a point in time when, in America, as in Britain, monopoly capitalism was starting to take hold, and corporate capitalism was starting to be invented, and inequality was starting to run amok. Obviously, there had been inequality in the past in the United States, but it was very much a, a dominant concern, as it is periodically. And people were debating for the first time, over the previous 20 years, they'd been debating for the first time in a serious way, whether we ought to have more government protections, whether we ought to have more welfare systems, or indeed any welfare systems, which America had historically not had. And the American dream began to be invoked in little ways by different individuals around the country in this debate about inequality and about what role the government should play in balancing the ambitions of the individual for prosperity, the pursuit of happiness in the Constitution. Um, that's no, it's, that's in the Declaration of Independence. Let me let yeah. me start over. So the pursuit of property, this pursuit of prosperity. Well, it's interesting. You have a, you note actually that Jefferson repurposes. Lock. Yes. You know, this. Yeah, life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. And what Jefferson actually does is. He put um, happiness, not property, didn't he? Yeah, but but happiness also comes from Locke. So what he actually did was mash up two Locke quotes, um, but they're from two different points. But to just broaden it out and to say that we are talking about a a notion of self realization, to use a modern phrase, that goes far beyond simply having property. Now, certainly the idea that prosperity is embedded in a notion of self realization, that you can't realize yourself if you're mired in hopeless poverty. I I don't think anybody would dispute, but the concept was supposed to be bigger than that, that we could dream bigger and we could, you know, want for more than merely property or mere material gain. But what was interesting about how the American dream as a phrase was used in this debate was that it was used on the opposite side from the side it would be on today. So it was deployed by the people arguing for regulation, arguing for government protection on the basis that rampant capitalism, unregulated capitalism, dog-eat-dog individualism would lead, they said, to the death of the American dream of equality. 
the death of the American dream of democracy, the death of the American dream of justice. And so those other founding principles of America were invoked in relation to the American dream for the first 30 or 40 years of its existence. And that seemed to me really important, given that we have inherited a debate in which we are told endlessly, not only that the American dream can only mean individual prosperity, and as we say that it's a justification for radical individualism, but also that we are told by many, many people, many American media commentators, pundits, will say that the American dream is anti to regulation, that it is inimically inherently hostile to any notion of social democracy. And yet what I've shown is that it was invented in order to, to advocate for social democracy. So, yabu. Yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you also have, I mean, it's, it's full of these repurposings. I mean, you describe also how Truman repurposes Roosevelt oh. in the same way. I mean, you'll probably remember better than I do the phrase he... It's freedom of enterprise. So what, what happened was, and this is, I should say, this is an argument that other uh, cultural historians have made. So I was just trying to explain how the American dream came to pivot. So all of the attention that the American dream has received to date has really focused from the 1930s when it was first popularized up through the post-war period, the way in which it was used in the, in the Cold War through the Reagan years and stuff. And there's an enormous amount of really excellent scholarship. And of course, I was relying on that too, and really trying to supplement those debates rather than to overturn them or anything, but just to say, let's look at the earlier period and see how that helps us understand it. So what happened was that Roosevelt gave this famous speech where he guaranteed Americans what he called well, the world, really. He said that what people need are four freedoms. There are four essential freedoms. And they are freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and then freedom from want and freedom from fear. And that, of course, was a, a promise he was making during the Great Depression when want and fear were, were pretty rampant. And those were seen as assurances. And, um, and they were very important to a lot of people. And a lot of government policy, including much of the New Deal, was predicated on those assurances. In 1947, FDR's successor, Harry Truman, gave a speech where he changed those second two freedoms, freedom from want and freedom from fear, to freedom of enterprise. And he said there were three freedoms in America, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and freedom of enterprise. For a lot of Americans today, that notion of freedom of enterprise, they would be very surprised to learn that that wasn't instantiated in the conversation until 1947. Many of them would again assume that it was probably in the founding documents somewhere. If not in the Constitution, it must be in the Federalist Papers or something. But it's actually a very modern idea. And, the, and our shift in meaning around the American dream pivoted around this idea of the centrality of individual enterprise and the way that connected to ideals of liberty. So ideals of liberty basically, you should pardon the pun, began to Trump ideals of democracy and equality. And the American dream was used to argue both sides, but it did so mostly sequentially. So first it was purposed on the side of social justice, and secondly, it was put to work on the side of individual prosperity. Right, to the other, the other half of your thesis is America first. Mm -hmm. Now, as you say, it goes back much, you know, we associate it with a sort of nativist, isolationist movement mm -hmm. around the time of Lindbergh and, yeah. and that sort of era. But as you say, it goes back much further. Yeah, it's much older. Some pointy white hats. The, there were a lot of white pointy hats involved. I'm afraid. I found the phrase used as early as 1885, which actually is roughly around when the American Dream starts to get used as well nationally. By the by, so they both emerge around the the late 19th century, but they both become popularized or they begin to gain some traction in the first decades of the 20th century. In the United States, the America first became a catchphrase for the first time when President Wilson used it in 1915 in a speech arguing for American neutrality in the First World War, of course. And it's something I talk about in the book, which I think is important for British and, and European audiences in particular, because I think there's a tendency now to conflate American neutrality at the time with isolationism. They're not 
quite coterminous. Obviously, there's a lot of overlap, but American neutrality in the in the First World War was partly a result of the fact that, to give just one prominent example, Irish Americans who had immigrated to America to escape the conditions created by British colonial rule were absolutely outraged at the idea of entering an alliance on the side of the British Empire. And that outrage only deepened after the Easter Rising in 1916. Yeah. And actually, as you say, there was certain people still alive whose grandparents had fought the British. Had, had fought the British in the War of 1812. And German-Americans, on the other hand, they could be literally fighting against their own family members, right, who hadn't immigrated and would be in Germany. So neutrality was, an, was in fact, in some ways, a not unreasonable response to, to very deeply held conflicting agendas. But of course, there was also isolationism, which just said, America, we're over here, we can do our own thing, we don't need to worry about the rest of the world, and the rest of the world has its own problems and they should deal with theirs and we'll deal with ours. Also, Wilson and all the sort of GCSE type textbooks about the League of Nations you know he's at least from this side of the Atlantic he's this great cuddly internationalist yeah. in some respects well he, you know? he was an internationalist and so that's the thing but he was also you know an old wily old diplomat and so he was trying to navigate this very complicated terrain so he tried to say that, that he used America first to say that America that neutrality was founded on sympathy for everyone and that neutrality was therefore the best way for America to be a friend to Europe, not isolated from Europe, but a friend to European countries. And that basically, to put it crudely, we would be there to pick up the pieces after the First World War was the way he was trying to argue it. So he said things like, you know, America first to lead, America first to be friends to everyone. But of course, it wasn't taken up that way. It was taken up almost instantly in the name of isolationism. And it became such a popular phrase that it it was not only Wilson's slogan in the 1916 presidential campaign, but that of his Republican opponent as well. They ran on the yes, same I slogan like that, of America yeah. first, which I thought was quite amazing. And then after the war, you mentioned the Treaty of Versailles, which was deeply unpopular in America because they saw it as being a guarantee that America would be tied up in what they called entangling foreign alliances, you know, in perpetuity. America first became the stick that they beat Wilson with to fight against the Treaty of Versailles. So his opponent, Henry Cabot Lodge, spoke at the Republican National Convention in 1920 against the Treaty of Versailles in the name of America first. And at that point in the 20s, it was taken up in the name of, as you say, nativism, isolationism, xenophobia. Just the rest of the world should stay over there and will stay over yes, here. Yes, you talk about its link with 100% Ameri yeah. Americanism, which feeds into a whole kind of racial narrative. That... Exactly, a very eugenicist notion. So what happened was there were several popular phrases at the time, and another one was 100% American, which, like America first you could use with the pretext that you were being merely patriotic and of course a lot of people did that but it's on a it's on a sliding it's on a slippery slope with a lot of other ideas that metaphorically it instantly suggests and one of the things i say in the book is that when you're living in a country that at this time was still dominated by the so-called one drop rule which said that one drop of quote-unquote negro blood made you legally african-american and therefore subject to initially slavery laws and later to miscegenation laws, you know, to Jim Crow segregation. The logic of biological, of eugenic racial purity, the idea of also of whether you, uh, and which, as I say, goes all the way back to the Constitution, to the idea of people being, of black people being only three-fifths, slaves being only three-fifths of a human. It's a country that had been operating on the notion that people who were, who had a higher percentage of being white had more rights. They were legally more enfranchised. That logic of, of purity 
of racial purity starts to entangle with a logic of patriotic purity, of national purity, of what does it mean to be a real American. And all of these start to become codes. And, and they were used very interchangeably. So by between 1915 and 1920, at the same time, and this gets to the pointy hat point that you mentioned a minute ago, at the same time, by no coincidence, we were seeing the resurgence of racist nativist groups like the KKK. The Klan had begun after the American Civil War in the 1860s, but it had actually been wiped out by federal forces. It was pretty much demolished. And then it was reborn as part of these, these anxieties and conversations, well, not conversations, that's way too civil for what was happening there, for these very violent fights over over cultural power, over political power, over legal power. And the idea of America first and being 100% American was very quickly taken up by the second clan, by the resurgent clan. In fact, they would march with banners that said America first, 100% American. The clan marching with banners is now leading us towards this sure. wonderful starting point. Fred Trump yeah. plays a role in your... Yeah, by the late 1920s, the clan was... They were actually trying to copyright the phrase America first. That was how much they wanted to own it. And in the late 1920s, yeah, the Klan was really consolidating its power, and they were very controversially permitted to march in a, more, in a Memorial Day parade on Queens, Long Island in 1927. And it's important to note because it has been mischaracterized as a Klan rally, and it was not a Klan rally. It was a parade in which a segment of people representing the Klan had been given a permit to march. And that was very controversial. And there, but there were 20,000 spectators there to watch, you know, the veterans and the Red Cross and to applaud, you know, all kinds of perfectly benign things. So it wasn't that there were 20,000 people there to, to watch the Klan. But there was a Klan segment in the parade. And that caused a riot, basically. There was a, 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 a scuffles broke out among people protesting the fact that the Klan was there and other people saying through free, free speech and freedom of assembly they had the right to, to march. These 20,000 spectators in Queens, it broke into a riot and... The police eventually arrested, they arrested seven people, one of whom was instantly released because he was a poor man who just had his foot run over by car. I know, I know. Nothing to do with any of it. I know, poor man. And then five of them were avowed Klansmen, according to the papers. They self-identified as Klansmen. And the sixth was Fred C. Trump. C for Christ, which many people don't know. It was a 21-year-old German-American named Fred Trump. And what's interesting, people found that story during Trump's campaign in 2016. And as I say, it was mischaracterized as saying that Trump was, Fred Trump was arrested at a Klan rally. That's not actually true. And we don't know why he was arrested. The papers don't report it. They just say that he was, he was arraigned and then discharged. But it does seem to me remarkable that out of the 20,000 people there, only six were arraigned. Five of them were Klansmen and the other one was Fred Trump. And especially given his later record on the question of civil rights. So just to give one example, in the 50s when Trump was building his property empire that his son inherited, he had tenements all over New York, housing developments, and um, the folk singer Woody Guthrie lived in one of his developments in Brooklyn for a few years, and Woody Guthrie was so outraged by how race, how overtly racist Fred Trump's policies were that he wrote a song about it yes, called Old Man Trump. Detail. I haven't seen this song. I don't know whether you unearthed <laughs> isn't, it, it or... isn't it? No, I didn't know. Other people have pointed out. But so one of the things that I was trying to do with this book was connect the dots and recontextualize things. So various aspects of, not all of it, particularly the rhetorical stuff that I'm talking about. There are people, you know, if you go on social media, you will see people saying that America First was a Klan slogan. So I'm not the first to, to reveal that. And people will say that, as I say, that Trump was arrested at um, a Klan rally. And people will say, you know, uh, Woody Guthrie wrote this song. But it's when you connect the dots, you see a different picture. Can I ask, though, I mean, one sort of semi-obvious objection to 
what makes your book current would be to say you know the meanings of America first and the American dream as you write and as you unpick with in great detail have transformed are sort of more or less lost to history and have to be recovered with the help of Google and with careful thought and with joining all these dots but can the original meanings sort of be a dog whistle if given that you know we're talking about Trump we're talking about someone who's you know used the phrase America first I mean he might not have used it in innocence but given everything we know about his understanding of history and his deep reading yeah. you wouldn't expect him to have any idea of how overdetermined these phrases were and how far back they go I mean I, you know America first it seems perfectly plausible that Donald Trump wasn't even really aware of the Lindberghian history of it. Well, it, it would be, except that I think it was Tina Brown who, who talked about the fact that he had Hitler speeches in his office in the 90s when she went to visit him. He's not as, he, he's, he obviously is profoundly ignorant in all kinds of ways, but he has his little bits of knowledge and little things that he knows. Even if he uses them knowingly, can he expect, I mean, you write in the book, you know, a dog whistle, you can't hear a dog whistle if you're outside its range, right. you, you know, you can't hear a dog whistle if you're not a dog. Is his base going to appreciate the resonance of these phrases? I mean, can they dog whistle if the meanings have been lost? Well, I don't think the meanings have been lost. And that's one of the things that I'm trying to, to show here is that so the when the Klan was uh, dismantled again in the 1940s, they just went underground and they again, they reemerged one more time. They keep reemerging and they're, you know, they're the repressed that we can't get rid of. And they reemerged when the civil rights movement started to gain traction in the 50s and 60s. And the 1960s were the centenary of the creation of the first clan in the 1860s. And in, in commemoration of that wonderful, glorious anniversary of the birth of, of these um, vigilante murderers, they were issuing America First commemorative coins, for example, in the 60s. David Duke, who is the most prominent leader of the Klan, has always said that he's for America First, and he said that when he endorsed Trump's candidacy. He said, he stands for what I stand for, America First. We've always stood for this. Pat Buchanan brought the phrase back up in the 90s. You can find pamphlets. I didn't go into it because it would have made the book even longer than it had become. But there are pamphlets that inviting people in the 50s and 60s to Klan rallies that use America First. So it just went underground. But people were using it. And... In terms of what Trump knows or doesn't know, who can say? What I was trying. The question is what resonates. I well, it does, and but it's, that's the thing, right? Is it resonates with some people, and so what you have to do, I think, is to yeah, there are some people who use it innocently, clearly, but there's innocence and innocence as well. I mean, so you say, okay, well, if somebody uses Heil Hitler and they don't actually know what Heil Hitler means, well, you could argue that that's innocent, but it's not an innocence you'd want to defend. So I think it's important just to reveal to so people who are genuinely are using this unknowingly, it's important to, the, to reveal to them the really ugly roots of a phrase that they're claiming they want to resuscitate. And one of the other things I show in the book without going into too much detail now is that America First was also associated with fascism from the very early 20s. So not just with the KKK and with local homegrown fascism, but with European fascism, people were explaining what Mussolini meant what Mussolini stood for to Americans in the in the early 1920s they said things like Mussolini is America first but in Italy and they said oh if you want to know what fascism is it's basically the Klan so they were making these connections and they were calling it terrorist and they understood that very clearly so I think recovering that in an, in an, in an urge towards truth-telling is important particularly because we live in a moment where people are denying that the Klan is a terrorist organization where in Charlottesville they were shouting blood and soil and then arguing that it was perfectly benign so to say this is not benign and it's not an accident. It's not a coincidence that these people are using the same phrase to mean the same thing. So some people, sure, can use it unknowingly, but a lot of them are using it very knowingly indeed. In terms of what Trump knows, well, we need to bring in another one. 
we talked about 100% American and we talked about America first, but those were both entangled with yet another code at the time, which was known as Nordicism or being Nordic. And Nordic was used in the teens and 20s basically exactly the same way that, that the Nazis used Aryan. So it meant, you know, the uber race, the, the better people. They used it to mean North, Northern European, but they also used it to mean blonde or white-skinned or Caucasian or Anglo-Saxon or what, what have you. And basically they were just saying racially superior. And it came from a, a, a theory of, of racial scientism that said that Northern Europeans were biologically, eugenically superior to Southern Europeans and indeed to everybody else. And one of the things I found was that there were debates about America first and Nordicism. So the Klan self-identified as Nordic. They would all say, we're Nordic. And people who remember The Great Gatsby might remember that Tom Buchanan says that in the beginning of The Great Gatsby. He's a white supremacist, and he says, I'm a Nordic, and you're a Nordic. It was very prevalent at the time, and it's basically saying, I'm Aryan, and you're Aryan. But what it did... We all go back to Norway. I know. Well, so that's it, right? So so what it did was it caused... It could cause some confusion where people would be almost comical if, it weren't, if the stakes weren't so high, where people would say, you know, I'm British. That means I'm Nordic. And you go, what does that even mean? I mean, this is totally bizarre. Because they actually chose this, you know, unlike Aryan, which is an imaginary place, with Norway, you get tangled up with actual people from Norway, with Norwegians. Well, cut to a few months ago, January 2018, Trump is talking about immigration. And what does he say? He says, I don't want people from these shithole countries in Africa and Haiti. I think we need more people from Norway. Everybody said, what an arbitrary choice for him to make. I mean, people got that it was white, um, but, but why not Sweden? Well, there's a reason why not Sweden. And if you go onto the Daily Stormer, the neo-Nazi website, or you just Google America First and Nordicism, you will pull up, as I have done, a cesspool of web pages calling today for a return to Nordicism in the name of America First in the United States. It's all there. It's just underground. And he didn't, there's no way he said that accidentally. So the reason why I think it's important to go to this prehistory is we have to remember that Trump is, what, 72 now, 73? He'll tell us on June 1st how old he is because we'll all know what his birthday is because he certainly won't let us forget it. Is it June 1st? I just remember last year that in June he kept going on and on about his birthday. So we will find out. Uh, he was born in 46, so he's 72. Or he will be 72. That's the point. He was born in 1946 to a father who had been arrested at a parade at which the Klan was calling for America first and calling for Nordicism. He was raised by a man he says he idolized. He has talked himself about his belief in what we would call eugenics, although he doesn't remember or use that word. But he taught. He says he's a believer. He's a believer in the racehorse gene theory and that when superior genes match with superior genes, right? So what I believe, for what it's worth, we can't prove any of this. But what, but what I think is that he inherited these ideas. He doesn't examine anything. Of course, he hasn't read deeply about it. Of course, he doesn't understand any of the prehistory of it. But he inherited these ideas from a father who was raised with a profoundly racist worldview. He inherited these tropes, and, and they are how he thinks. They're in his head. And I think it's really important that we point out that although 100 years ago may sound like a long time, it's not for somebody who's 72 and was raised by a much older father. So Fred Trump, you know, as I say, was an adult in the 1920s when all of this stuff was happening. So I think recovering that worldview and the attitudes and values that informed it that I think clearly were passed on in a very unexamined, unenlightened way. But are they in his head? Yeah, I think pretty, the evidence shows pretty clearly that they are. Well, it's an interesting curiosity that another phrase you find a genealogy of in passing is that Woodrow Wilson 
came out with fake news. <laughs> Isn't and that I, great? I, it was extraordinary. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And it was in the speech where he calls for America first. So in the America first speech, there was this little subheading in the in one of the articles reporting it that said, you know, fake news decried, I think is the quote. And because it was 100 years ago when propaganda began to be used in a way that we would recognize with mass media. So yeah, so he complains about fake news. And a lot of the catchphrases that we're that we think are very much our own go back to this time. So Steve Bannon has been calling for uh, or was calling for economic nationalism. That was a phrase that was used around the Treaty of Versailles to talk about economic protectionism. He'd have been more knowing about that. Steve Bannon has read a lot, and I think he probably read some of the same sources that I did. Stephen Miller, who is still in the White House as one of Trump's senior advisors, used the phrase 100% American in his high school yearbook. So the point is, is I'm not just (laughs) digging up... That's had lots of people put things in their high school yearbooks. Sure, but he has been consistent in in espousing the ideas associated with that, which is my point, right? So it's not just a question of going back, excavating these old ideas that have been totally lost to people and lost to history and beating people over the head with it and saying, you know, how dare you use a phrase that once upon a time meant something terrible, but nobody uses it that way anymore. What I'm saying is there's continuity here. And they are clearly using this, these phrases in consistent ways. And as I say, they are, they are phrases that you can find in much less veiled dog whistle terms, in much more explicit, less coded, more overt terms on the overtly neo-Nazi web. So it's, it's there. They are calling for Nordicism in the name of America first. They are calling for people to be more 100% American in the name of America first. They are saying things like Trump represents what we represent. He stands with us. When he made the Norway comments, a spokesman for the Daily Stormer said he's on the same page with us. And they didn't note, the, the reporters noted that, our mainstream media noted that, but they didn't note that the page in question, the web page of the Daily Stormer, was explicitly calling for Nordicism. And that's why Norway. Well, why Norway we now know. <laughs> under the sun. Indeed. Well, thank you very much indeed.